Do you need to get an MBA? Alicia Mackay doesn't think so. Her book, You Don't Need an MBA, is our topic of conversation on the Your Next Read podcast. This book's for anyone that wants to learn a bit about change. It's about learning how change is a team sport and how to lead and how to strategize in a way that's going to get other people on board. It's a great conversation. Leisha, as always, is is entertaining and enjoyable to talk to, and you're going to love listening to this. Alicia McKay, author of Your Next Read, You Don't Need an MBA. Uh, Alicia McKay, congratulations on your new book, and who should read You Don't Need an MBA? Who should read it? Hi, thank you. Everybody should read the bloody thing. Um, <laughs> isn't that the answer? That is so the answer from you I would have expected too. It's great. You should all read it. But also, um, if you have a job and you'd like to be quite successful in your job because you're quite ambitious and you're out there like, oh, how do I be better? How do I do better? How do I grow my business? How do I get a promotion? Um, before you go and spend tens of thousands of dollars and years of your nights and weekends, um, maybe you should read it. Mm. And it, it definitely, I actually felt like I have an MBA after reading this thing. Oh, stop it. Well, no, there's, well, there's so many things about, I'm I'm one of these people, like led businesses and all of that sort of stuff and all of that's cool, but I was always shit out at all of that strategy and eye-dotting crap that people talk about. And you seem to be able to make that stuff really tangible. And was, was that something you were trying to do, to, to be able to make it a bit clearer? Yeah, that's um, so the core brand value that I have um, and personal value is summed up by a tagline that we use here, which is no buzzwords, no bullshit. And I really take um, offence at corporate jargon and wankery. And I think that strategy in particular is something that's been uh, mystified and people talk about like it's this whole thing and I've got a real problem with that so it's important to me um, at that level to be able to make things accessible and useful but honestly I was thinking about this I think yesterday so it's a useful question to ask me because I think it's deeper than that I think my desire to make things make sense and to make information accessible goes a little bit deeper than just sort of that anti-corporate rebellion or or whatever it is. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that, like, I don't come from very much. Like, I had a pretty... I had a pretty tricky start in life. I was a teen mum, I was a foster kid, and I come from pretty humble beginnings. And if I wasn't a reader... I'm not sure I would have had a vocabulary that enabled me to do the sorts of things I've done in my life. Like being a bookworm saved me as a kid and going to university saved me as a teenager. That was almost your happy place, was it? With your head buried in a book was was your happy place? Always, always. Nice. And I think that when we make things difficult to understand, I think it's classist and I think it's elitist and I think it's unfair. And I think this stems for me from a personal value that nobody should be held back or limited from being able to improve their knowledge or improve their life and so something I've really taken on in the last couple of years as my mentor is my role as a translator and I think that I used to spend a lot of time feeling inferior or smaller because I didn't have the same access or the same privilege or the same networks as the kind of people I've worked with in my career now 
And now I see that as an incredible strength. And I think actually there are not many people out there that have the opportunity to meaningfully connect with both chief executives and politicians and foster kids with nowhere to go. I can speak both of those languages. So it's my responsibility to do that. So I think I'm not sure that that's quite, you got more than you bargained for there, but I think I my, but it, it makes my you value a bit, there is really strong. I think what you do is you you build almost that bridge between that corporate wank three-letter acronyms that I never know what they mean. One of the taglines in your book is leadership lessons that cut through the crack. That's right. And, and it's exactly what it does, but it you can almost read that and sort of think, oh, it's just going to be, you know, Alicia having a rant about this and having a rant about that and doing her and Alicia thing. And you could thing. be forgiven for assuming that. <laughs> yeah. No, you. I definitely went into it thinking that's what I was going to get. I was going to get a whole, you know, I was going to get the Alicia show. And that was there and I really enjoy those little bits of it when it popped up. But it wasn't the whole book. This whole book is about being a better leader. It's about having better strategies and doing it in a way that just a normal person can understand. And I like that you've picked up on that, Luke, because I actually, I had a great podcast interview um, with Shane Hatton uh, last week, and we talked about a shared allergy, a shared ironic allergy, actually, that we both have with the word leadership, or at least the word leadership as it's become this very trendy sort of cottage industry. And I'm a little bit allergic to that word because it's pretty obvious to me that the attributes you need to be a good leader are no different to the attributes that you need to be a good person. And so is it necessary to tack the word leadership on? Possibly. I put it on my book. It does sell books. But is it necessary to make that distinction? And I don't think so. Like if a leader is just a person that cares about something and gets good shit done, whether that's leading a country or leading a company or leading a family or leading yourself should become irrelevant. And at that point, chuck the word out, mate. Just be a decent person. Yeah. It's, it's that Marcus Aurelius quote of don't argue about what a good person is, just be one. Yeah, just be one, mate. Yeah. As, as I said before, it wasn't just the Alicia show. It was a like, wow, you're going to have, here's your five points that you've got to do. And to be able to get through some of that really huff, tough, hard things you've got to be able to come up with that and you've given that in this book which I think is I, I read it and just went holy shit I'm I kind of I'm going to read that again because that was really oh, good stop it. um but it's you know I'm one of the things you pay out on about it in the book is sort of you know old white guys and you know I'm putting my <laughs> hand up and I'm, I'm an old white guy so we cop a little bit of a hiding but that's okay we deserve it we've had a pretty good run for a long time well you've had a good run to date but actually I suspect heard it here first but I suspect that that is the one component of that book that is not going to age well because I'm already uncomfortable with it and I think that it's all very well for me to position myself and be like oh dudes and to be very clear I have still today you know plenty of old dudes who question my credibility on the basis of my age or gender and maybe not overtly but overtly enough for me to understand it. And any of the young women listening to this podcast are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't have to say it for me to know it. But I think this is becoming in the same category a little bit as that is the Karen meme, where actually if you have to knock someone else down to make your point, is your point actually that powerful? And it's not that I don't believe in what I'm saying, because I absolutely believe in what's in there. I think that the classic 
career trajectory that we've been encouraged to follow and invest in is no longer going to be appropriate to succeed in a much more complicated and complex world. I absolutely believe that. Do I need to take a stab at old white dudes over 50 to do it? I don't I don't think so. So I'm pretty yeah. sure that that is not going to age super well. Well, it's not a big part of the book either. You, no, you no, say it's a bit line, at the start. But too. I think about it often. And it's I'm like, oh, did, really, Alicia? Do you need to be that person? I don't know that I do need to be that person. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Okay, but you, there, there's a lot of stuff that you that you get into that I really loved, and there's some words that I'd never heard of before. Oh yeah, I, I'd love you to tell everyone what the hell is frangible. Oh, frangible is one of my favourite words. Could you please so tell the, the whole story of how you came up with it? It's a so the story. context for that is that when I was working as a policy analyst in local government, I was doing a policy review, so I had to go through the manual and update a whole bunch of stuff. And what that means in a small agency or a small council is that you wind up writing policy for all sorts of things that you've never heard of. And I was charged with doing the roads and transport policy section. And so I had to go and sit down with our roads manager. And You'd talk be to my go-to about, roads person. Mm, totally. <laughs> yeah. I know all sorts of things about roads now. Uh, and so I had to go and sit with him and update his policies. And you can imagine that if you were a overworked roads manager in a small council taking charge of a large roading network, the last thing you need is some 22-year-old chick sitting in front of you being like, let's update your policies. So we already didn't have time for my shit, let's be clear about this. But anyway, we were updating together um, one of the policies, which is around what you can build in the road reserve. So the road reserve is the strip of grass that runs next yep. to the road. That's not private property, it's, it's public property. And there's a whole bunch of rules in there about what you're allowed to build and what you can and can't do. And there's a rule in the policy that says anything which is constructed within the road reserve must be frangible. And I read the word twice and I thought, oh, my God, like I already didn't want to look stupid because I knew they didn't have a lot of patience for me. I'm like, hey, what does the word frangible mean? Do you mean fragile? And he just gives me this kind of withering look and he's like, Ugh. and I'm going to do a really butchery job of explaining this to you. But what I took from that is that, what frangible means basically is that if you hit it with your car, it will fall over, not you. It will break, not you. And so, for example, if you're building a, a mailbox and you're putting it up on the road reserve, you can't build it out of bricks because if a car was to hit that yep. at high speed, the person in it would die. So you have to make, put it on a wooden post so yep. that if the car bashes into it, the wooden post falls over and the person survives. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, that is not the technical definition of frangible. That's the one that's, I'm using, though. But that's what I've taken from it. And so the the reason that that story is in the book is around the concept, that core concept of leadership flexibility that says, you know, before you develop any competencies or capabilities, your effectiveness and your ability to do good stuff, particularly now, depends on your ability to cope with change. It rests squarely on your ability to be aware and to take agency and to be resilient. And so if we use frangibility as an indicator of resilience, we're kind of saying, no matter what you bash into, it's okay if everything around you falls to bits, but you need to be all right. Because no matter what... You've got to be able to You've got to be okay. So I guess in this, you're the car. Or the person in the car, it's not totally clear to me who plays what role in that metaphor. But the idea is, you know what, even if you have a charmed life, you are going to confront disruption, sickness, 
legislative change, personal issues, whatever, you're going to, the world's going to fall around you, a pandemic, you're, you're going to lockdown, right? No matter how charmed your life is, you're going to face something. And so your first priority needs to be making sure that even when everything else is fucked, you're all right. Yeah, okay. I kind of extrapolated it into that that idea of, you know, holding on, having, you know, strong beliefs but hold them lightly. Oh, that's a good one. Yes, uh, put the metaphor there. Strong let's go with that. I like <laughs> that too. I, that, that's, what I, that's what I kind of read into it about frangible is that you can have your strong opinions all day long, but if they get hit with a car and your strong opinions aren't helping you anymore, then perhaps you need to be able to change them. Well, and, it, you know, I really like that you've brought that up around the flexibility thing because I talk to people about this a lot, about how important it is to be willing to change your mind to be willing to go, where am I wrong? What do I not know yet? To be willing to have an opinion, even an opinion that you've stated publicly or a political party have voted for or something that you think you support, how important it is as a person and as a leader to be able to go, actually, I've had some new information. I don't think that anymore and let me tell you why. Like, that could I'm going be, to upgrade my thoughts. I'm going to upgrade my opinion. That could yeah. be perceived as a weakness, but it's actually an incredible strength. Yeah, my co-author with my book has actually got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience, so he's a massive nerd. Amazing. And yeah, he's really cool. But that, that's one of his things. If you can give me a, I'm going to argue tooth and nail my point of view, but if you can give me a better one, I'm just going to take it. I'm, oh, my God, I'm, I'm, I'm the worst at that. I'm absolutely the worst at that, particularly after three wines. So I get to table-banging point of an <laughs> argument at the pub, you know, and I'm like, yeah, and then someone says something and I go, fuck, you're right. No, take, I take back everything I've said. You're totally right. I didn't think about it like this. And I think that's really important. Your ideas are frangible. Yeah, they're frangible. You can hit them with your car. I can hit, you can hit my ideas with your car. In fact, as you read my book, Wonderful Listeners and Watchers, I implore you to regularly try and hit my ideas with a car. Send me an email about it. Mm-hmm. Love it. Love it. And you have a couple of other things in there that, that I want you to explain for the people listening as well. Um, okay. Volvo Leadership Challenge. <laughs> <laughs> this, this just went, holy shit, I've been doing this with a few things along the journey. And it's, it's oh a thing. God, we all do it, don't can, we? Can you explain to everyone what a Volvo leadership challenge is? I, I don't know the passage. I'd have to read you the passage. There's a, in fact, it's worth going and Googling it um, and reading the full passage. Here's an insight for people that haven't written books. You can only take so many words of a passage from somebody else's book or movie and put it in your book before you have to pay a royalty for it. And so if you quote it, you just take a little bit out. But it's actually, it's actually best read as a whole passage. But essentially um, it's this concept about, you know, you wouldn't watch a movie where somebody spends their entire life working and saving and being goal-oriented towards buying a Volvo. You wouldn't, you wouldn't emotionally <laughs> invest in that person's journey and find yourself shedding a tear as he as he drives off the, the, the car lot with the window screen wipers going. You would, you know, you wouldn't be moved. In fact, you wouldn't watch the bloody thing. You'd watch mm. 10 minutes of it and you'd get up and walk out of the theatre. But yet, so many of us live our lives or work our jobs with the expectation that those kind of mediocre conservative aspirations will fulfill us. And then we're surprised when they don't. So we're like, well, that's weird. I did what was expected of me, 
and I still feel empty inside. Look how good this Volvo is and I still feel empty inside. And I think that there's there's that, there's the, the meaning thing, but at a very tactical level, at a very micro level, when we look at the way we spend our days, so bring it down a notch and don't think about, you know, big picture, meaningful, fulfilling life, just bring it all the way down to the tactical and go, if you look at your calendar and you review how you're spending your time and you're going through day after day of operational crap, admin, meetings that should have been emails, putting out fires, and you wonder why you're not getting anywhere and you wonder why you're not enjoying your job, well, is it any bloody wonder? You know, we have calendars absolutely packed full of Volvos but we expect to have some kind of transformational leadership out of the other end. And it doesn't work. If you want to have a real difference, whether that's in your community or at work, you need to be spending your time in a way that reflects that. And that means being able to go, you know what, this stuff, not going to spend my time on it. Can't do that. Can't spend my life stuck in the weeds, putting out every fire as it comes up, because that's going to leave me in operational hell. And so I think the most successful leaders are those that are able to zoom out and go, this stuff that feels like a threat or a panic right now doesn't really matter that much and have the perspective to be able to prioritise time for the big picture, for the big questions. Mm. And you, you spend a lot of a lot of the book talking about how to get your time better and things like that, but one of the things you talk about doing deliberately is the people who you hang around with. And that it's really important that the the people you associate with, you know, some of that's going to by osmosis sort of become part of you as well. And there was one that really, really struck with me and I underlined it and wrote down notes and stuff of that about finding truth tellers who care. Yeah. And. Oh, yeah. You you have a a mutual friend of ours, Kate Billing. Talk, talks about having a challenge network and a tight five, Ooh. she calls it, of people that you have around you that are that are going to tell you the truth, even if you don't really want to hear it, but they're going to tell it from a place of love. And um, I guess how do we go about finding those people? Because it's, oh, it's a tough one. It's actually really hard, Luke. I don't think that there is a science to it or a three-step process that I can give you for how you find those people in your life because I think they pop up in all sorts of unexpected places. So one of my truth tellers who care is my best friend, Callum. And, you know, we've been friends since I was at high school and we love each other dearly and we've reached a point of comfort and familiarity in our relationship over decades where we can say to each other, hey, you're being an asshole or that's the wrong thing. And we have so much conviction and faith in each other's opinions that, if the other person said something, that's it. So he was living in Melbourne when um, when the first sort of bubblings of the pandemic began in March 2020. And I called him and I said, come home now. And we hadn't clicked yet what was going on. So there were no lockdowns. There were no mm. border restrictions. I said, come home now. I said, oh, I don't know if that's true, Leisha. Like, I'll be all right here. I said, I don't think so. And I'll pay for your flight if you need to, but you have to come home now. And he came home immediately because... Right because I said that and I wouldn't pull that lever unless it really meant something. And so that's a really connected relationship where we have the freedom to be able to express that. Um, I think you might find that at work. You might find that um, in a romantic relationship. It might be your partner that calls you on your bullshit. It's actually often for me, my children. Like I don't get a lot Mm -hmm. past my kids. But I don't think there's a science. To Apple hasn't you... fallen too far from the tree, huh? No, I don't think there's a science <laughs> to how you do that. But I think there's probably a couple of things worth saying there. And one of them is that 
as you progress in your career and in your life and your leadership, it will become increasingly difficult to cultivate a network of people that are able to challenge you. And that's for a couple of reasons. One of them is because you become increasingly convinced in your own ideas because they've worked for you, right? It's like, well, I must be quite good because now I've been promoted and I've done quite well. And so you get this increasing kind of confidence, which is great, but you get all of a sudden these blind spots you're not aware of, yeah? And then the people that work for you and with you are less and less likely to offer you constructive feedback because it becomes career limiting for them. So it's tough at the top, all right? It's lonely up there because people can't tell you that you're an asshole. So if you haven't taken the space to cultivate that at an early point in your career or life, it becomes progressively more difficult to attract those people later. What I do think is important, though, is rather than walking around with an attributes list trying to find a truth teller that cares, is to take agency for controlling what you've got in that dynamic which is, just like we talked about before with frangibility of opinion, are you showing up as someone who's real and humble and open to feedback and aware of their own bullshit and looking to question things? And if you're showing up like that, people are an awful lot more likely to engage with you and to give you constructive feedback because they don't think you're going to be defensive and they don't think it's going to be career limiting. If you've got a reputation for being good with feedback, then you're already at a massive advantage. So if you don't have any friends, and I feel for you, I don't have a lot of friends either, don't panic. Just be a better human and make that obvious. Yeah, okay. That you're More that you're open to any new ideas and you're open to being called on it when you need to. Yeah, and, and it's those many things, isn't it? Like people know the, the people that it's not worth calling out because they're just going to be dicks about it. Like yeah. you know, you're like, I could say something, but it's not going to be worth it. Yeah. You don't want to be a person who's got a reputation for that it's not worth it response. And they're, they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There's tons of them. They're all over the place. So what happens when you have something like someone like that, you know, in your either above or below you or in your, in your leadership chain? So how do, how do we go about sort of talking to them in a way that, that allows that to open up? Because that's a real, it's a big question. It's probably yeah. a bit big to fix all of it today. But is there any things that you'd actually say to people of what you can do in that situation? I, the one, only thing I can think of is to ask ask, ask for the um, permission to be able to tell them something first. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But it's, it's sort of one strategy I use. Is there any others that you would use? Well, my number one piece of advice for someone who wants to be more strategic in their leadership is always to default to questions. So never mm-hmm. default to telling, always default to asking. And so you don't have control over how other people think or how other people feel. What you have got control over is how you show up. So there's two things in there. One of them is leading by example, which is, are you modeling the qualities that you would like to see in somebody else? Because often the things that we detest in others are exactly the things that we're prone to ourselves. Mm. So first of all, check yourself. Are you, are you the problem? And if you're not the problem, are you behaving in the way that you think the other person should be? Because if you're not, Maybe work on that first. Second one is defaulting to questions. And that means asking questions. And it might be, are you open to some feedback? But it might be questions that are related to specific behaviours or events or meetings where you go, how do you reckon that went? How do you reckon such and such took that? What do you think we can do next time? Which is a lot less confronting than coming at somebody Mm. with, with a suggestion. Because I think, and we talk about this in the systems thinking component of, of you don't need an MBA, What's challenging about questioning people and processes in the workplace 
is this presumption of judgment or blame that immediately erects defensiveness Mm. on the other side. And if we aren't moving into every situation, assuming positive intent and approaching with compassionate curiosity, people can feel that. So if we're coming at someone and it's just clear we're setting them up for something, well, they're not stupid. But if you're able to assume positive intent and think, you know what, this person probably gets up every day, comes to work to try and do a good job, probably is doing their best. And even if they're not, it's probably useful for me to assume that they are when I talk to them. And then the thing becomes, hey, why is this happening? This thing that I, that we should talk about rather than, hey, why are you such a dick? Because they're quite different conversations. Mm, it's, it's turning, I, I guess Adam Grant talks about this as being um, task conflict or relationship conflict. Yeah. And we can have as much chats as we'd like about task conflict and we can get as animated as we like about a task. But the moment that, uh, and I actually had this, I was on the couch the other day and my daughter was tickling me. She was being a pain in the ass. And, um, and instead of saying, stop tickling me, that's annoying, I just said to her, you're annoying. And I just caught myself and went, oh, oh I've just taken that from yeah. being, I'm sick of getting tickled. Please go away, you annoying little turd, to yeah. you are an annoying little turd. And it was it's amazing how quickly that switches in a workplace that is situation. such a good example. That is such a good example, Luke, of the difference between the problem that you're taking ownership for your feelings of. I'm, I don't want to be tickled anymore. It doesn't make me feel good to be tickled, which is one, which is a problem, versus you're an asshole, you're annoying. Yeah. That, I mean, th- but that being aware of catching language we talk a lot in the book about how you catch how you catch your own language yeah i wanted to talk to you about that because it's a big part of the book isn't it it's huge it's a big part that even just tweaking things a little bit you talk about in there and the examples that you use one of the things that you talked about was i get to or i have to yeah the the james clear stuff can you take us through some of that for me because we're not very smart like when we say things we believe it when we say things with our mouth or in our mind our brain goes, well, I thought it or I said it, so it must be true. And what's interesting about that is not only, so that can be really damaging from a bias perspective, but it also means that we can hack it. So if we say things, even if we don't truly believe it yet, if we say the right things or we grab our thoughts and we tweak them to be a slightly more useful version, we can then change the way we actually feel about a situation. Like, yeah, right. uh, it's amazing. So the, the example of the I'll have to, I get to, that, that's not mine. That's... Um, James Clear. That's James, that's James Clear. And he talks in his book, Atomic Habits, about how if you're looking to cultivate gratitude, just do a word swap. Every time you're going to say, I have to, try saying, I get to. I get to cook dinner. Huh, yeah, because I'm home and there's food in my fridge. That's pretty good. You know, I have to pick the kids up from school. I get to pick the kids up from school because they've got flexibility in my work and my car goes. So that's cool. Right. So there's those little things. And I did a whole bunch of research after I read that book into what the equivalent of that was around strategic leadership. So how do people who are good with change and and coping in an uncertain environment speak versus how do people who are battling and not doing so well with change speak? And the model that's in the book lays out those findings and essentially shows that we're able to kind of categorize those phrasings or language around a few different categories. So if you are passive, you tend to use the language of I can't. It's focused on the things that you can't control. So you say, oh, I can't do this because I'm in lockdown. I can't do that because I've worked from home. And it's really defeatist language. It's the language of defeat. 
And at that point, you're actually losing agency and you're significantly less likely to be able to thrive in uncertainty, right? But then we've got this kind of, and this is what James Clear's picked up on with his I have to, we've got this language of constraint. And this is your kind of reactive language that, like, I think reactive gets a bad rap. At least if you're reactive, you're active. Like, it's Mm. better than being passive. Better than doing nothing. That's right, but it is very constraint-focused. So you're still handing a bunch of agency away. So I have to do this, I have to do that. It's like, no, look at me, I'm just at the will of the forces around me, and there's not a lot of agency in it. Mm -hmm. So you will get action, but whether you make any progress is another story. But then you've got these kind of two really key categories where if you're able to shift your language into that zone, we see a significant difference in how much these leaders are able to deliver, um, how good the teams feel, how productive they are. And that's when we shift into either the language of choice, which is about what you're going to do or what you choose, choose. to do mm-hmm. rather than what you have to do, right? Or into the language of experimentation, which is around what you're trying to do or what you're learning to do. And if okay. you can be in one of those zones as often as possible, you trick your brain into thinking that you do have agency and you feel better. And then you unleash this you know, cascading domino effect of benefits around identifying opportunities because once you're in that space, you see them and helping other people to feel more in control. And it's it's transformative at a way, at a level that feels like it shouldn't make that much of a difference. Yeah, I got that. Tweaking a couple of words. When I was reading the book, I'm reading that thinking, wow, that is really, that's just like tweaking two words. It was literally changing two words. And that completely changed the way you look at it. And it was. I literally did this last night. So last night, 6 p.m., our Prime Minister says, you're all going into lockdown at midnight, level four, whole country. And my first thought was immediately, I can't and I won't. And I went, oh, I can't go, because I was supposed to get on a plane today and go down to the South Island and visit my sister. And I haven't seen my sister for almost a year. And so I'm like, oh, I can't see Holly. Oh, I won't be able to see my niece and nephew and no, I won't be able to keep up with the F45 challenge now because the gym's shut, so I'm just going to get fat now. And, you know, go around this whole I can't, I won't thing. Yeah. And then we and the whole oh, catastrophe cycle too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just because we went into lockdown. And I wasn't even now. really sad about it. It's just what was coming out of my mouth. But because yeah. I'd just been writing quite a bit and working with people quite a bit with that exact language model, I went, hang on, hang on. Wow, you're a hypocrite. Practice what you preach. Hang on. <laughs> what can you do here? And so I started off what I choose to, and I was sort of like, I'm going to meal prep my next couple of nights, dinners in the morning, and I'm going to FaceTime my sister and talk to my niece. And so I started there, and then I'm like, actually, I'm supposed to be the expert in this shit. Is there something I can try? And so my experiment of I'm trying or I'm learning to was I'm going to try running a 30-minute live every morning on LinkedIn, on social media, as a three-day live and lockdown special, I'm going to try that. And if nobody turns up, that's okay. And if nobody likes it, that's okay. Because I'm going to do that because I'm going to try and I'm going to see whether that makes a difference to how I get through three days of lockdown alone. Because I'm here alone. And so I'm like, well, I'm probably just going to fall into a deep pit of despair. But if I'm going to be on camera at nine o'clock every morning, I'll have to brush my hair and put some mascara on and say something useful. I'm probably going to feel better. And so that's what I'm trying. And as soon as so I nice. shifted into that, here's what I'm choosing. Here's what I'm trying. Well, I actually watched it this morning and it was very good. Oh, did you? So, yeah, if you want some feedback, it was good. I watched, I watched oh, it this great. morning. It was great. But it was kind of like it's when you – because 
the danger of living in that um, choice focus language I'm going to, I choose to, is still that you've got quite a lot of attachment to outcome. And when you're a very proactive person, which is what you are at the choice layer, the choice layer, you find that the danger with being proactive all the time is that you can be a bit of a control freak. And that's where I spend a lot of time is trying to control variables and being a control freak. Mm-hmm. And so the the step there, if we can take the nudge, is can we think in a less attached way about the outcomes of our behavior and decisions and be okay with experiments? I'm trying to do this. I'm if it works, to- great. If it doesn't work, great. Yeah. If people turn up, awesome. If they don't, I've got out of bed and brush my hair. You know, yeah. and when you move into a situation with less attachment and you're willing and open, and that's back down to that openness, right? That frangibility. If you're able to be ready to be knocked around and probably change how you do it halfway through, well, then you don't feel powerless or you don't feel like you've failed. Mm. And so there's so much depth that sits behind such minor manifestations of our thinking. It's yeah. it's, it's it's astonishing. I love the concept of the action gives you answers. Just do it. If it works, great. If it doesn't, great. Yeah. I love that. And you, you kind of talk about that a little bit a little bit in the book as well. I want you to bring up something else. There's, there's two things, two others that I really, really got out of this. Can One I just say, Luke, I love that you've read the book and are answering and you're asking me specific questions about what's in the book. I have been on, I would say, 20 different podcasts for this book since it came out. And I'm not sure a single one of them has gone, here's a thing I really loved from your book. Can you talk about it? So can I just give you some feedback right now that this is well, an exceptional format for interviewing? It's kind of my job for this, for this podcast. So, so that's much cool. more value than just going, so why'd you write the book? This is great. Yeah. You rock. Okay, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things you talked about in the book was taking compliments as well. So I'm going to take that. Yeah, do um, But you wrote something, this might have even been a throwaway line and you might not have even, it wasn't a big part of it, but you talked about having half conversations. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. And I, think, I think this is in the decision section, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I just stopped and went, wow, how often have you had a, a conversation with someone? Mm. And it might be one of those people that weren't part of your, you know, truth tellers who care or something like that. And you haven't said everything that you wanted to say and you haven't actually let them know your feelings. You've left elephants in the room and you've had this half-assed conversation. Yeah, and you just And you can feel it when you're in the room, can't you? When people are just saying. No one wants to go there, so we're not going to go there. And the problem that we're here to try and solve is not going to get fixed because we're all having these half conversations. And we know it, but we just want to get the fuck out of this room. Yeah. And I, 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 I kind of kept extrapolating a little bit that half conversations are all like, I, I hate the term difficult conversations. We all, everyone uses, oh, this is a difficult conversation. It kind of sets itself up for failure, but I haven't heard anyone give me a better alternative yet. Yeah. Um, you know, Brene, Brene Brown talks about rumbling on conversations that are going to have a bit of a, a fight to it. Georgia Merch, another, another mutual friend of ours who wrote Flawson talks a little bit about having those honest and frank conversations. But there was something about, and I extrapolated a little bit from yours, of having the whole conversation. Mm. You know what I mean? Not having a half conversation, but having a whole conversation about the whole thing and being safe enough to have the lot of it out. Yeah, hang on. Using yeah. the word safety is so bang on there, Luke. That is bang on. The reason people have half conversations is because they don't feel safe having the whole one. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really good, and there was just that little penny drop moment 
of it that like holy shit. and it was just it was a throwaway line in the book it was like mm-hmm. a little tiny bit in the book but it all of the stuff that you'd written to lead up to that just made me go holy shit that's I'm having half conversations with quite a few people around the place and I'm gonna be brave enough to have whole conversations now and I, I really love that so I wanted to, I wanted to thank you for that one I'm not even sure that was all that intentional no, that's, that's brilliant, and it's so great to hear. I mean, the the aim, I think, when you're either giving a talk or writing a book or something, is that everybody leaves with just kind of one nugget, and you can never predict what that particular thing is that's going to land because you don't know exactly where they're at, what's in their head, or what's happening in their life. Mm. But if everyone leaves with this one thing that goes, because, hmm. you know, I read shit ton of books. I'm a speed reader. I can read a 1,000 words a minute, and so I can read two books a day. And so I just read and read and read and read and read. I'm nuts about it because I've right. spent my whole childhood doing it. But for every book on my bookshelf, I reckon I'd pick one up and go, ah, because that's got the whatever in it, right? Like I'd only remember one thing from it. And if you've taken one thing that will stay with you, well, how's that for a win? I love that. But I think your, your feedback around how do we make it safe to have whole conversations is the ticket in that reflection. Because people aren't, if we get back to assuming positive intent, people aren't having half conversations because they're snaky. I mean, maybe sometimes they are, but that's pretty rare people aren't being sneaky or covert or disingenuous because they're assholes people are doing that because the environment that you're in and the relationship you've got isn't conducive to really getting stuck in and because whoever's in charge of leading that space or leading that conversation hasn't been able to identify what they need to do to make it possible to have a whole conversation safe that's right and so creating that space So in the decision section of the book, we talk about the frame of the decision, the space for the decision, and the action from the decision. And the space is all about how do we make it safe to break down all of the ideas and identity stuff that's getting us all tangled up and be able to acknowledge challenging things that, like you've said before, are elephants in the room. We know that they're there and we know that you can't work with what you can't see and that if we don't tackle it, it's not going anywhere. How do we make it safe to do that? And so I'm a career facilitator and that's what I specialize in is walking into a room going, ah, no one's saying the word restructure. I see why. Let's get this out. And yeah, okay. like that's it's not even it's not even hard, but it's being it's just knowing the skills. And so it's being able to say, all right, guys, before we kick off, I'm gonna run a quick exercise called Yena. And I'm gonna have everybody tell me what they're excited about. This is your year column what they're worried about, this is Jana column, and what you think other people aren't saying. So let's get that out. I want, yeah, nah, let's go. And we whip around the room, and it takes five minutes. So it's, yeah, what we're saying. What are you excited about? What are you worried about? And And what is no one saying? people not saying. Not you. I like that. It's what are other people not saying. Okay. And people go, well, I think there are a few people in the room feeling uncertain about the restructure we've just been through, and I think that is a hot topic, and I'll go. Suddenly our words out. Yeah, thank you for having the honesty to put that out here for all of us. Do we all feel better for having it out now? And everyone goes, that is better. And like you can feel it in the room. Your body language changes. Yeah. Now, that's not a challenging or um, particularly expert skill. It's just, and this speaks to the main kind of thesis of the book, it's just something that we aren't taught. So we mm. teach people to be really agreeable. Good. We teach people to be agreeable as well. We teach people to be agreeable, how to do good slideshows and convince people of things and um, make their budgets balance and work their leave balances out. And we don't teach people how to bring people together in a safe way or how to think big picture about tricky challenges or how to run a decision process in a way that 
will get us the change that we're looking for or you know how to think in systems and, and cobble an organization's problems together we don't teach people how to do that but yet once you reach a certain point in your career and I often kind of talk about how people get the rug pulled out from under them because you're like I'm good at my job I'm good at my job I got a promotion I'm even better at my job I got a promotion oh shit and you get I don't to know how to do my job being a good technical expert at whatever you are, a scientist, a salesperson, engineer, isn't what's going to make you good at your job anymore. What will make you good at your job is, can you make decisions in uncertainty? Can you lead people through change? Can you create a safe organisational environment where people are able to, have to make progress? But no one taught you that, but that's your job now. Well, it's that and idea so- of getting getting further up the ladder until you get to incompetent. Yeah, and, and actually, like... I really want to push back on that trope because we say that, don't we? We say we promote people to the level of their incompetence. And I go, actually, fuck that. Oh, are you allowed to swear on this podcast? It's probably a bit late. It's a bit late. Yeah. I'll go, fuck that, actually. That is so victim blamey. That's saying someone's good enough until they're not. But if that's happening to everyone, is there a chance? Then we've got an issue in the system. Issue here. Is there a chance that we are promoting people into a position with skills that we've never prepared them to wield before and then wondering why they're not there? Well, you made a great point in the book, and I I come across this all the time with coaching clients and stuff, is they have this illusion that leaders are born, not made. And it's the greatest load of bullshit I've ever heard in my life. Isn't it just? Have you seen a baby, Luke? They're like a little potato. Yes, they're not leading anyone, are they? No, but, yeah, the whole house rolls, revolves around. <laughs> but you, you made that point in the book that that, yeah. that you know leaders aren't born; they're made, and we've got to be able to look for people that are going to help us, and we've got to be able to recognise that we're perhaps not leading as well as I could because I don't know how. Who can I? Oh, totally. Where Where are my truth tellers who care that are going to actually help me with this? But and, there's kind of there's there's good news and bad news about that because the good news is that you know you can develop those skills and actually some of the best news is that it's the challenging times and unexpected and adverse circumstances that you face that give you the opportunity to be able to really build those skills and test them right because you get to put them to market you get to work out if they work and test them in a live environment so from that perspective leaders being made not born is is really good news the bad news is that because we haven't codified that into our um, progression pathways at work or our training and development pathways, there's a whole bunch of skills that are treated as though they're inherent or personality traits. And so when we talk about things like judgment, we we tend to think that if somebody is now in a senior position, it's because they've got good judgment. And like we talked about before with that kind of blind spot around awareness, those people probably think that too. They probably mm-hmm. think, well, I'm because really I've made judgment. decisions that have had good outcomes and I'm now here, I've got good judgment. Whereas actually good judgment is not a personality characteristic. It's a set of skills and capabilities around making good decisions. And like we talk about in the book, making good decisions has nothing to do with the outcome. It's about the process we use to make them. And if we consistently use a good process, we are statistically more likely to get good outcomes, but they're not guaranteed. And that's not our metric. Our metric is around process. And that's just steps. And if we don't teach people that, and we don't recognize that those leadership skills are not innate, they are made, and that means learning, then we're setting people up to fail, which is what I think we're doing at the moment. And it like it pisses me off a bit. I think one of the one of the things that happens, one of the 
one of the sort of, you know, the the thing that gets hit on the side of the road a lot of the time up that ladder and leadership is that people start losing curiosity. And then you talk about that a lot in the book too, that you've got, if you're going to be a good leaner, you've got to be able to maintain that, that level of curiosity. Am I doing this as well as I could? Do I have the skills for this and where can I get them? And I, I actually, I, I, I looked at how you brought that up in the book that to, to be a proper leader, you had to maintain that curiosity. And the further you got up the ladder, the more important it was. Isn't that and, funny? Like, yeah, that, that, it's counterintuitive more, though. The the further yeah. you get up the ladder, the more you start drinking your own Kool Aid and think that you know what you know is what there is to know. But that's where you know you look at the likes of you know Bill Gates and and you know Warren Buffett and stuff. They, they're like yourself; they read a couple of books a day, and you know they're curious. And uh, here's here's a quick hack for that. Here's how you can tell if you're being curious: your voice goes up between half an octave to an octave, and you go. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so the test if you're being curious enough, listen to the tone of your voice. If you find yourself saying things like, it's a bit interesting how oh, <laughs> that slightly higher voice, like you might be talking to a baby, bam, curiosity. Okay, so the really curious people are walking around like they've been sucking helium for the last yeah, half Yeah, yeah, right. all day. Well, I've got I've got one more thing I want to talk to before we get into into our fast fire because we have a little fast oh, fire shit. to end these Aren't things. Are you supposed to warn me about these things? Isn't the process supposed to be that if there's a fast five, I get the five ahead of time? No, I'm warning you now. You're you're you're, you're <laughs> agile and and curious and stuff. So I just right. this is just a little quick one. What are camper <laughs> vans? I don't know what camper oh, vans yeah. are, and, but you talk a little bit about procrastinating on on mm. big things, and you called them sort of I think they were camper van dreams or yeah. something like that. Can you explain yeah, that? Oh, that's one of my favourite analogies in the book. I'm so Me happy too. you brought that up. And the live I'm running tomorrow morning, I'm going to talk about that. So I'm so glad you brought that up. So my grandparents have been talking about buying a camper van for years, possibly decades at this point. They're like, oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get an RV and we're going to just drive around the country and it's going to be great. We're going to get, we're going to go to Australia. We're going to drive around the outback. We're going to have this camper van. And you go around, and it always comes up at least once on every visit. If you went on my grandmother's computer, there's probably two tabs open. They go to those, like, you know, um, motor van expos and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And they've, yeah. like, so they've been talking about it for years. They do not have a camper van. Now, the reason they don't have a camper van is because their life is not currently set up in a way that actually makes that possible. They've got a heap of animals at home that they need to feed, and they've got two baby grandchildren that live quite near to them that they help look after when the kids go to work, right? And so they've got some really basic life things that mean the camper van dream doesn't quite line up. And the reason I tell that story in the book is because I think most of us walk around with a camper van or two on our shoulders and we think about something we really want to do. And for me, I I think I said in the book, for me, it's been karate. I've been trying to get back into karate Mm. for like 10 years. And I never do. And I go through a whole process. I'm a member on all these um, local club Facebook groups. And like, I'm always checking it out. Then I'm like, I just, I travel too much and my kids have organized sport and activities and it's hard to squeeze it in. So it hasn't worked. That happens a lot. People are walking around. But what's, what's problematic about that is that that's taking up a whole lot of mental energy and it's making us feel as though um, we're wrong or we're shit, or we're doing something bad. Whereas the reality is... Or I'm not living the life I want to live because I don't have a camper van. And it's like, it's actually really simple. 
if your life does not align with the goals that you have for yourself, one thing has to shift, either the goal or the life. So if it was that important, you would align your life in a way that made it possible, right? And if it's not, take it off the fucking list. Stop walking around to black camper vans if you can't buy a camper van. Put it away, pick it up again in five years' time. Alicia, stop looking at karate. If you're not going to commit to a club, put it away. Because otherwise it's dead weight just hanging around here. And the organizational equivalent of that is long-running projects and programs that people talk about doing at some point and they don't do, but it's hanging around like a bad smell. And if we keep those camper vans with us, they slow us back. All right. So what we've got to do is go, look, one thing has to shift here, either the thing or the life. Love it. It's actually really simple when you put it like that, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You you did that well. Well done, you. Well, yeah. I mean, all that actually has to come out of that is just significant and transformative life and mindset changes. How hard could it be? You know, you just sounded a bit MBA then, didn't you? Mm. We'll we'll, we'll let it it that out. Good truth telling -telling from someone who cares. Uh, Well, here's some truth. I, um, I use jargon all the time. And I have to, because I talk to people that operate in jargon, but because I swear occasionally, here's the trick, here's the trick. If you can't get away with not using jargon at all, and you often can't, and sometimes I try, like I run workshops with people and we try to ban acronyms or buzzwords and we start like a naughty list on the side of the whiteboard and every time somebody uses one, we put their name up and the word they use and it becomes quite fun. But like I do it as much as everyone else because I move in these places where people talk like this and, and you get like it. The trick is if you can't get away from jargon entirely, pepper it with occasional offensive language or jokes. And when you do that, you give the perception of being casual and plain English when actually you're just very jargon and kind of offensive. Okay. Yeah. That's a really, really bad advice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. Works for me. Really bad advice. And I'm just taking my role as truth teller right on board here. Okay. Yeah, no, are you are you ready for your quick fire? I mean, no, I'm mean, not ready at all. But yes, you are. Look, flexible. you're born ready. Okay, all right. this, this, this no, book's I'm called not your... ready. <laughs> right, this book's <laughs> called Your Next Read. So it's all about books, mm-hmm. all right. And so these are these, and you're a massive bookworm. You're a big nerd. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Um, so it's all about books. So what are you reading now? Oh, what am I reading now? I'm reading um, a collection of essays from Jonathan Franzen called Father Away, which okay. is really good. Uh, I'm reading a novel called The Night Watchman, um, which is by an American author and chronicles um, how a bunch of Native Americans were treated in a factory town some time ago, which is really good. Right. Um, I just finished reading Matt Haig's Midnight Library a couple of days ago, and I loved it. It was so good. Um, And there's probably about three other books. I'm also trying for like the 20th time to get through The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, and she's the only or the youngest person ever to have won the Man Booker Prize, and she's a Kiwi, and it's set on the West Coast. And I try, oh, it's very dense. It's a lovely book, but it's very dense. Yeah, I'm like that with Cloud Street by Tim Winton. I've tried to read that three or four times and just can't do it. Yeah. I've also been doing that with Infinite Jest for about three years. I'll pick it up and put it down again. David Foster Wallace, it's next to my bed. And I'll yeah, that's, it a, that's an intense book, though. That, that's, that's like Thinking Fast and Slow, I found a bit like that, too. It's a, yeah, it's a, okay. So did you have a favourite book as a kid? Was there one that you read lots and lots as a kid? Okay, this is a bit silly, but as a kid, my favourite novelist was John Grisham. You know, he writes. Oh, I love them. Love them all. The, the firm and the, and the. Yeah. 
the Pelican Brief and all. Oh, really? So I dreamed as a child of becoming a lawyer. That was what I wanted to, to do, and I actually did um, start a law degree before I switched majors. And so I read John Grisham books a lot as a right. child, and it was my favorite thing to do. I also um, I read all of those. Uh, Flair in the Attic books, V.C. Andrews. There's heaps that know about these like weird ancestral hillbilly kids that get locked in the <laughs> attic, and the brother and sister get it on. And like, it's a bit odd, but anyway, I read all of them. Okay, we're going to leave that one alone. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> what's a, what's a book that everyone should read? Oh, there's so many books no, that everyone should one. read. Other than yeah, you know, can I have a? Can I have like a like a format or a genre? But we're 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 with Major Street, so a business book that everyone should read. Oh well, okay. Here's some insight okay. on that one. Just to be um, clear, though, I am currently on business book ban. You might have heard Are me you? say that on my LinkedIn Live this morning. I'm not reading any business books or self help books until the end of 2021. I'm only reading fiction and essays well, because I've overdosed. That said. I've yes. still got lots that I recommend. So um, one of them would be Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Yep. I love him. I love him so much that I built on one of his models in my book. And then I sent him my book and said, what do you think of my book? And he said, this is great. And wrote a recommendation. And it's nice. on it. Um, but anyway, Essentialism is such a good book. It's written plainly. It talks to some stuff that's really close to my heart around actually we live in an environment packed full of just noise and distraction. We're all feeling overwhelmed and underutilized and it doesn't need to be that way. We can take a different approach, a more focused and meaningful approach to the way we live and work. And it's just such a good, simple, useful book and everybody should read it. Nice. Um, And... If you were going to have an autobiography, what would yours be called? I'm thinking it has to have the word rebel in it at some stage. Maybe. Well, okay. So the hoodie, without a clue. Right, the hoodie <laughs> I'm wearing right now is um, I arrived yesterday and it's from Amanda Billing, who is our friend Kate's Billing's sister. Yep. And she has There's another the French past, one as well. Yeah, you, yeah. You so she's a clothing and t-shirt company. And one thing I bought like eight of when she was doing them was these t-shirts that say strong female character on them. And I've I seen you them. wear that. I bought them for my three daughters as well. And we went on a family holiday once to Fiji, all wearing the same T-shirt. So cool. Anyway, I reckon, seeing as I love that T-shirt so much and that ethos, is so like this house is like 80% estrogen, mate. I've got three daughters and me living here and it is it is a female feminist environment. I reckon I might call the autobiography on that basis strong female character because it. it would talk about my complicated relationship with my mother and like three generations of inter- intergenerational teen parents that came before me and my three daughters. So strong female characters even maybe. Nice. Okay, this one's a little bit hard, so I'm going to drop you in it a little bit. It's the last question yeah. for the day, and thank you so much for coming on on the Your Next Read podcast. But if we had to have a takeaway from You Don't Need an MBA in a sentence, what would you give us? Ask better questions. Ask better questions. Nice. You do actually bring that up a little bit in it that you kind of, instead of telling people how to do stuff, I'll ask them the right questions and give them the room to be able to come up with what they do and then you get the buy-in from everyone else and all of that sort of stuff. So I, I think as far know, as strategy and leadership, you know kids, that's a good advice. Says to you, oh, how do you spell blah, blah, blah? What's the first thing you say back to them? How do you think? How do you think you spell blah, blah, blah? And then not only do they get a go at it, 
but you get better information about what they are getting wrong or right about the rule that sits behind how you spell that. So you're like, no, it's I before E, you know. And increasingly, the world is less knowable. Work is less knowable. And your success is no longer predicated on what you can know and what you can tell. What you know expires very quickly. Your success is determined by what you can ask. Nice. Love it. And on that note, Alicia McKay, thank you very much for coming on your next read. And if you want to read You You Don't Need an MBA, um, we'll have the the things in the show notes and make sure you put the Y&R in there to get get your discount code. And Everyone's going to love this read. If you're if you're anywhere in in the workplace and you need to sort of work out how to get strategy and how to be a better leader, this is a great book to read. And congratulations on a fantastic book, Alicia. Thank you. Pleasure. If you'd like to make you don't need an MBA your next read, go to majorstreet.com.au and use the code YNR to get your discount. Enjoy your next read. I'm Luke Mathers. Thanks for listening.